Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. Okay, so today we have with us Professor of Economics at George Mason University, Alex Tabarrok. Uh, I'm gonna read here from your bio. Uh, Alex is, is professor of economics and also uh, co-author co of the blog Margin Revolution and co-founder of Margin Revolution University. Beyond his many, many articles in economics, uh, in economics, criminology, regulatory policy, voting theory, etc., he's also the author with Tyler Cowan of Modern Principles of Economics, a textbook that I use in, in, in some of the classes that I teach. And to the audience of this video is going to be some of the students that will take the class this fall associated with it. So, um, Thanks, Alex, for, for joining us. Oh, great. Thanks to be here, Carlos. So let, let me first start by thanking you for the work you've been doing on Margin Revolution in the past few months. Uh, of course, for, for a long time before that, but in the past few months, ha that has been an amazing source of information for us to understand and think through the pandemic in, 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 in very, very interesting and thoughtful way. So, so thank you for that. Um, so let's start by going back before the pandemic started. And... Um, when you, uh, your book, you talk about the pandemics being an example of, of something that could be an argument, let's say against trade, for, for example, uh, or thinking about supply chains that would protect us from, 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 from situations maybe such as the one we lived th this past year. You also talk about vaccines as a great example for, for externalities. So I guess the first question is, uh, how long have you been thinking about pandemics? And in some ways, are you at all surprised by what we're living right now? Yeah, so yeah, I'm pretty pleased about the textbook in that uh, we do talk about pandemics both in micro and also in macro as an example of a supply shock, a negative uh, supply shock. We mentioned pandemics. Uh, I don't think any other textbook uh, does that, so I'm uh, pretty pleased about that. Um, I, I, I guess uh, influenced by Tyler, of course, but both of us are, have long sort of thought that these small probability, very bad events are something which humans sort of naturally don't pay attention to. Um, uh, you know, we overlook the uh, important for the urgent, right? And some of these big issues can be important, but because they don't happen year after year after year, they, they just fall off the radar, even though they are important. Pandemics is one of those. The other one we mentioned in the textbook actually is uh, asteroid collision, you know, which I, I hesitate to even mention because I fear the gods, you know, might hear. <laughs> no, you know, something like that. <laughs> We're in a string of bad luck right now. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the trade issue is an interesting one because, yeah, we do mention that um, we might not want to have free trade in vaccines because you want some uh, vaccines. Uh, because actually, the reason is interesting, because of vaccine nationalism, which we're seeing right now. Uh, that is, when we have a bad situation, governments might say, we're keeping all the vaccines for ourselves, or we're keeping all the diagnostics or the ventilators for ourselves, or we're going to shut down free trade. Um, and so because of that risk, you want to keep some in your own country. And I think that's kind of an interesting reason, uh, an anti-free trade reason, because it's not a market failure. Right, we're not arguing that uh, we should have uh, tariffs for because of market failure. We're arguing that we might want some tariffs to protect this industry because of government failure. 
uh, if we, in fact, you know, maintain contracts and had a real free trade across the whole world, I think it would be fine to have vaccines located in other countries. But given the realities of vaccine nationalism, you might want to keep some at home. That's great. That is exactly right. right? It's not a failure of the market. It's really a failure of, of, of governments and barriers that are artificially imposed. All right, let's now talk about the current pandemic and go back to March. Let's start from, from you know, early March. When would you start getting really concerned about this? And, and what were your thoughts in the very beginning before even any kind of policy got put in place in the U.S.? Right. So I actually started to get, uh, I would say, not, maybe not very concerned, but concerned in January. Um, and Tyler wrote a piece on uh, pandemic economics at the, towards the end of January. And by mid-February, I was very concerned. I was calling for uh, a Manhattan Project for uh, vaccines, and I'd stop shaking people's hands. <laughs> I remember we, we had a conference at uh, Mason, and people took it, you know, in a jovial way, but they thought I was weird, <laughs> you know, because I wasn't shaking hands anymore. Um, but yeah, I was really saying we need a Manhattan Project, um, and you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, right? I'm not a medical person. But I didn't have to be, because as an economist, I just looked at China and I said, what is going on? Look at what China's doing. They're, they're locking down entire cities. Um, at one point, you know, half of the Chinese population was confined to their homes. So as an economist, I just worked backwards. You know, I just said, look at what the Chinese are doing. They're not, they're rational. They're not crazy. Um, if anything, the Chinese, you would think, would be more concerned about the economy and less concerned about people, right? Uh, this is an authoritarian government. Uh, this is a government which doesn't have any compunctions about, you know, arresting and jailing, you know, the Uyghurs, billions of people. So if anything, the Chinese are going to be more concerned about the economy than they are about people, and yet they are taking these huge actions, unprecedented actions, locking down the economy this has to be serious. This virus has to be serious. And, and once you thought that, I mean, the chances that it was going to be confined to China then just seemed really low. I mean, in March, it's true, we only had like 30 cases. But when you saw- It was everywhere already at that point. Yeah, it was probably, exactly. Exactly. I mean, how could it not be, right? I mean, but just seeing what the Chinese were doing to me was a huge- warning sign um and i was amazed that other people were not taking it as seriously so so and and i think most of us start paying more attention to it and start thinking about what to do in in early to mid-march right? i think like second week of march when you see universities for example where we right. spend our times uh saying that we're not going to come back from spring break uh you start seeing the first states in the country going in and 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 and, and provide, putting measures of 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 shelter in place type, type things um, at that point, were you, what are the things that, 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 that this, of the policies being considered at that point, was there anything that you were um, not comfortable with or comfortable or more comfortable? How would you evaluate those at that point in time, given information, you know, now by, 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 by early March? Yeah. So, I mean, I really thought that, you know, I'm a sort of government skeptic, a libertarian free market guy. But I, I really thought the CDC and, and the FDA would, uh, would, would handle it, um, as they you know, seem to have done reasonably well in the past with avian flu and, and so forth. And at that point, it seems like 
it could have been handled uh, with a pop, with a, uh, a test and trace uh, a program. That is, the whole danger of these vaccines, excuse me, the whole danger of these viruses, as you very well know, is, you know, this exponential growth, right? Or the potential, at least, for exponential uh, growth. But that actually cuts both ways, because it means that if you stop it early, then, then you stop, you know, this huge right-hand tail. And it's not that hard to stop it uh, early uh, if you get in there and test and, and trace and, you know, take people's temperatures they're coming in from, uh, you know, the rest of the world and do a whole bunch of kind of things, which is not impossible. Like Kerala in India uh, has done this, right? Other places have done this. We, I thought that's what we would do. Um, so I was, I was worried. Um, I thought sending people home from the universities, I thought that was fine. Um, but I, I'd still at that point, I thought that a test and trace was going to be what would happen and would have solved it. So, so in some ways, when you see the initial reaction of, of states being, okay, maybe you put a shelter in place to gather the resources to do something like that, because it was early still, uh, we could have, uh, um, so in some ways, you, but we didn't see that happen, right? So, so I think that the, the problem is the coordination problem, I think might be that, that, where we, we really didn't have a good plan in place. Exactly. The whole point of the lockdown, even going you know, further than shelter in place, but the, the whole point of that was to take the time to get a test and taste test and trace program into place, you know, so it, the whole thing was crazy in that we had tremendous warning from China, you know, the clocks and bells were going off. So we had plenty of time to prepare. Then we gave ourselves even more time with a lockdown shelter in place policy. And, and yet we did not, we, we forgo those advantages and we didn't use that time to our uh, advantage. And so we ended up in the situation where we've now got over 100,000 dead. And the CDC and the FDA uh, completely failed. It was a failure of historic proportions. You know, as you know, the CDC came out with a botched test, uh, which didn't work. And that slowed things down by weeks, which of course makes all the difference when you're dealing with an exponential growth process. And then the FDA compounded the CDC's failure by uh, forbidding uh, private companies and state labs from using their own tests. It's incredible. I mean, uh, in a sort of Kafka-esque uh, situation, the FDA said, this is an emergency, so that <laughs> now to get a test approved, you need an emergency use authorization. And that actually meant that private labs which had the authority before the emergency to use their own tests. No longer have that. <laughs> no longer, because there was an emergency. But I'm laughing about it, but this, is, this was responsible for thousands of deaths. The whole, you know, as someone who for decades has been very skeptical of the FDA, to now see ordinary people uh, in the New York Times um, saying, look at these massive failures of the FDA has been quite remarkable. And I th never thought it'd be, I'd see that in my career. So, uh, all right. So, so, but it's still at that point, uh, we, we, we had the, the notion of shelter in place or locking down obviously has a tremendous cost associated with it. Yeah. So as an economist, you know, I can, I, I, always, I can't help but always think about the trade-offs we're facing. I was very concerned at that point in time already thinking that, are we going to be able to accomplish anything with this? And if we're not, then it's just a waste of 
is a giant cost that we know, we know that maybe we don't know the magnitude, the, the extent of the cost, but, but we knew the direction pretty clearly and, and, and perhaps even some of the magnitude. Um, what, 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 you know, how, how are you dealing with that? Because that's the part that perhaps, you know, you and I maybe differ at that point in time. I was like, I can't, I cannot trust governments to know what to do with this time. And therefore, yeah. telling every individual to stay home is going to be catastrophic. Yeah, well, it may be that you were right and I was wrong uh, on that. I think we actually still don't know, really. Um, and you're going to be the one, you're going to be one of the people who are going to figure this out, right? Because uh, the, the, the data, I think, is still, is still coming in. Uh, there's so many mysteries about uh, this virus and how it works. Um, so it's not clear how big a gain we got. I think we probably did save lives in the end, um, which it's interesting because economists are usually accused of always just thinking about the, the bottom line, the dollars, and not thinking about what's really valuable. You know, economists know the price of everything and the value of nothing, right? And yet in this situation, it's precisely because economists put a value on human life and that value is quite high, right? It's, you know, eight, nine, $10 million is a typical value that is put on human life. That just then summing up those values uh, that you could save along with this, you know, potential exponential process um, actually made a lockdown look pretty um, economically uh, viable. Um, but obviously there were, not only are there, were there economic costs, but we're now finding out that there were political costs. Um, and I think some of the social unrest and the riots and protests, uh, this is a unintended consequence of um, the lockdowns. And uh, you, you know, that now combining the virus with these mass protests is a huge worrying uh, phenomena. And it's pretty clear you know, that tracing, contact tracing is out. Like, I, I just don't see that working anymore, right? Uh, especially not with the apps. Um, I don't think people were, are, they're not going to sign up for an app anymore. It's no way. So, so and going back to, to, the, to the death point, like, absolutely, when you think about the value of a life and think of the number of people that might, might, might die, that adds up pretty quickly. But my main concern at that point in time was the fact that we were not, if we believe on the models of progression of disease, all the lockdowns could do was just to postpone the deaths, not necessarily solve it. Because you know you you cannot just stay in place for years. Or and again, it all is a function of the probability of a successful vaccine. If there's a probability of a successful vaccine in six months or three months, that's one calculation. But the probability of a successful vaccine is something that comes in 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 a year. Then the calculation is very very different. Um, um, so that I feel. That's my frustration at that point in time had a lot to do with that. I think that, that discussion was not open and it was not clearly put, put forward that way. If we're really thinking about a vaccine in 21, summer 21 being the place where it's available, then it seems that the option of locking down, it was not, I guess, I guess the option of, of early on having a contact trace to sort of keep things like at lower progression until a vaccine is available, sure. Um, but yeah, as you said, I think that we, we maybe had hopes for that, but that didn't, didn't necessarily take place, right? I mean, three weeks later, you saw that that's not happening. And now right. all we're doing is, is, is delaying a problem. Um, I think that's partially true, but I don't think that's quite right, though. Um, you know, we did early on hear this metaphor of flattening the curve, right? Which I think actually was, was a mistake um, because 
you can crush the curve, right? I mean, theoretically, let's just, right. you know, uh, think about a model, okay, right? So it's not, not quite realistic. But theoretically, if this thing has, you know, a two-week symptoms period, all right, and, um, you know, then, then you know whether you have it or not, right? If everyone sheltered in place for three weeks, the thing is dead. The virus is completely gone, right? So in, in theory, a, a shelter of at least of, of three weeks, of as little as three weeks, could totally end the virus now. With no reintroduction. Exactly. That's, that, that's why I say this is just a model, right? Simple, simple model. Um, uh, yeah, with no inter- reintroduction. But, and of course, that, uh, not everyone is going to shelter in place, right? So that is somewhat unrealistic. But I thought that there was a good opportunity to use shelter in place to bring the um, R way, way down, you know, bring it below one, and then with contact uh, tracing, uh, you know, to really push it, as New Zealand has done, as, you know, South Korea uh, has, has done, as Taiwan has done. So I thought that there was a opportunity to do that. Yeah, I, 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 that, that would have been amazing if we had done what New Zealand and South Korea did. I fear that our system, our geography, our size and magnitude makes it so hard, right? Yeah. I mean, South Korea is a place of one city, really, uh, one right. major city, something like, I hope a percent of the population live there. So, yeah, that, that, uh, that's maybe my skepticism was like, do we, do we have the capacity to do this as a, in the diffused federalist system that we have? And, 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 and we saw that shelter in place perhaps did bring down the R number of the, uh, the reproductive uh, number of the virus. And, and now we're seeing the opening up and things that things are not going back too fast, right? So, so maybe this sort of like slow burn is what we're, we're looking at now. Um, so yeah, so let's turn to now, like what do you see now, given what we know now after the reopenings in, in place in Europe, after what you're seeing happen in the US, how do you see the situation unfolding from this point forward? Yeah, um, I suspect that we're just gonna have a series of uh, rebounds and bounce backs and ups and downs. Um, so I think we haven't seen the end of uh, shelter in place, we'll open up and quite possibly have to go back again. Um, but also, I want to be clear, like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, um, it, 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 and it's interesting because I felt that early on, like back in January, this is one of the few times, I don't claim to be a super forecaster or anything like that, um, and, but this is one of the few times in my life that I actually thought I was ahead of the curve, and one of the puzzles to me was, like, how far behind the stock market was. Um, and I actually felt I knew something which as an efficient markets guy, the stock market was not taking into account. It was surprising to me. It was a very, uh, uncomfortable situation. And, um, but now I, you know, I, so I thought I knew something then, but now like, I don't think I know anything like, and it's not just obviously the virus, but given the social unrest and the protests, um, I, I mean, my Overton window has grown so so large um, that uh, politically, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I think there'll be an election in November, but I, I'd have to give some probability <laughs> to that not happening. The world is so crazy right now. Um, I just but, feel but, that, but let's focus yeah. on the virus. Let's focus on yeah. The- okay, sure. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, fair and, enough. And on the disease front, I think every epidemiological model out there, every single one of them predicts that we will 
given the opening that you see in the States and in the countries, in European countries, that this thing is going to take off again. There'll be a second wave. Um, I don't think any of the, any of the, the Western societies that, that, that have been dealt with this have a system in place of contact tracing that is aggressive enough that allows them to end the level of the disease in the population is high enough that it's not just a few cases, right? We're talking about thousands of cases in every single, in every single uh, uh, Western society out there. So, you know, the prediction is, is one dimension, is that everybody's going to face a second wave. Um, yeah, so you think I, you've just been lucky at this point? Or, or, or unless there was, there's something about the virus we don't know. Right. So, so um, I, I think the virus just, it seems so heterogeneous. Um, so we know now that the nursing homes uh, were just a huge, huge vector. Nursing homes and the hospitals, right, were a huge vector for this thing. And had we just um, controlled access to the nursing homes, again, we did crazy, the government did crazy things that, you know, saying that uh, you have to accept a COVID patient into our nursing right, home, right. which was exactly, excuse me, the wrong thing, totally the wrong thing to do. So it seems now that understanding the nursing home problem um, and maybe some of these super spreader events, um, maybe that will be enough. And we have masks. Um, I don't know. Uh, I hope so. Um, uh, you know, the models haven't been very good, uh, as you know. Uh, so maybe, maybe we'll get lucky. Let's, let's turn a little bit to, 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 you've been writing a lot about vaccines and, and uh, the, you mentioned the Manhattan Project style thing associated with contact tracing back in January, but now we've been pushing that notion in the, in the vaccine context. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, you know, the, the things you're thinking about in the context of uh, helping, what government policies could be put in place to help the development of vaccines. Right. So an amazing thing about this is that the virus in our policies are costing the economy, you know, so much. Um, you know, the U.S. economy is losing 150, 200 billion dollars a, a month. You know, 50, 50 billion a week, let's say, something like, something on that kind of order. Um, and that means, on the flip side, that anything we could do to fight the virus uh, passes a almost anything passes a very easy cost-benefit test because sort of billions on one side and trillions on the other side. Um, and this also means that speed is incredibly important. So uh, working with uh, Michael Kramer, Nobel Prize winner, uh, Susan Athey and uh, Chris Snyder, a bunch of others, what we've been thinking about is, look, how can we get a vaccine sooner? Okay. And one way is the following is that these vaccines, most of them fail. Okay. Um, so you want to have a lot of shots on goal. Um, that's one point. And, but because most of them fail, a vaccine manufacturer, their private incentives are such that they're not going to start building a factory to produce the vaccine until the vaccine has been proven safe and effective and approved by the government, right? So uh, they'll just try and get the vaccine approved and then only then start building the factory, which can take months uh, even years to build one of these vaccine factories because they're incredibly precise uh, ma manufacturing process. So what Kramer and I and, uh, and the team have been saying is, look, what we should do is have the government um, pay for the factories to be built uh, 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 at the same time as you're running the safety and e efficacy trials. So you have basically one factory per vaccine candidate. And we think you need about 15 to 20 
uh, candidates to have a 80 to 90% chance of success. So you start building the factories now, you do the testing now. Some of those um, uh, vaccine candidates are gonna fail. And those factories then are mostly gonna be redundant. We're gonna have, in a sense, you know, wasted you know, a few billion dollars. But if we could get a vaccine you know, just a week sooner, that's a $40 billion savings. So it's really worthwhile to invest in getting this fast capacity. And the, the, the market itself, the, so the, the, the signal that the, the, the private market would, would need for that to be done just by the, the pharmaceutical companies um, is not sufficient in your view. Correct. Yeah. I, I mean, it, this is like maybe the world's biggest externality. Um, and you can see that in the stock market because, you know, you look at one of these stock companies like Moderna and uh, it announces, you know, we had a, uh, a eight person, you know, we had neutralizing antibodies in right. eight people. Okay. And their phase two test or something like that. And the entire stock market, you know, goes up. Right. So the stock market goes up like a trillion dollars in value. And Moderna, I mean, it goes up, it goes up, but it goes up like $5 billion, you know. Um, so that kind of gives you a sense of the value of the social value of a vaccine is in the trillions and the private value is in the billions. Um, you know, if we could do something even a little bit more radical, uh, like give these vaccine companies uh, options in the S&P 500, you know, that would internalize some of these externalities. Uh, I don't but, think we're quite there yet. So okay. I, I say just do the investment. I see. I see. Because there's no way they could ever capture the private value associated with it. the public value could never be translated to private value for them to, to, to invest. So Moderna could go start building a factory. There'll be people willing to finance them if the private value was there, but it's not even close to what the public value is, right? Correct. Got it. Got it. And, and so another point you make that I think is very interesting, I, never, I didn't think about it before, is that if you just let them um, focus on on developing a particular strain, they're going to focus on the highest yield, the highest probability one. And that might lead to a lot of different pharmaceutical companies trying similar things, which might be actually way beneficial to diversify and try crazier things, more like moonshot type, type of approaches. And, and that's, again, the role of, 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 uh, of the government to encourage that, right? Yeah, exactly that. And that's a reason why we should, uh, some international competition is, is a good, not competition, coordination uh, is a good idea as well, because you want if every vaccine candidate goes after, you know, the same uh, spike protein, then they're probably all going to succeed or they're all going to fail, fail, right? And so to diversify the basket, you want some going after the spike protein, some going after the M protein, you want some DNA vaccines, some mRNA vaccines, you know, some live attenuated, you want a diverse mix, and that requires some coordination. Um, so given what has been put in place, I think the, the, the project works, what is it? Warp speed. Is that the, the right. name of it? Uh, right. what you see happening here in the U S and other places, do you, given what you guys been thinking about and designing, um, any country or us have done anything that's like pointing that direction? Yeah. I mean, we're definitely, warp speed is definitely in the right direction. Um, we just think that it should be bigger. Um, you know, the Europeans had this, um, ACT advanced something, collective, I forget what the uh, thing was, but I mean, they, were, they were talking $8 billion for vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics. And that's like insane, know. right? I mean, it's crazy. Um, you know, as I said, the, you know, the world economy is losing like, 
the IMF estimates that the world economy over the next uh, uh, year, 2020, 2021, is going to lose $9 trillion, $9 trillion. So like, like let's spend eight, eight, $80 billion, you know, um, you know and, and fight this thing. I, I, again, I've been, I've been like, you know, I've been pushing this a lot, but it seems that we can do things we've done before. So like unemployment insurance, we, you know, we pushed the button, we've expanded that by, you know, a trillion dollars. We've got, you know, different forms of payment, uh, you know, and so forth. We spent trillions on that, on relief. Spent trillions on relief. And I'm just saying, let's spend a hundred billion or so, you know, on tests and vaccines fighting the damn virus. Yeah, in those bills, I don't think you even saw much, even in the way of testing, right? So there's like, a, right. uh, yeah, so, so there's very little, very little folk. Again, it's just, we know, we know what to do. It's more of the same, right? We did do the, 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 what they can pass is more of the same. Um, exactly. So, okay. So let me go back to externalities, something that you, 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 you mentioned. And, and, and I want to think in the context of one alternative to the policies that we put in place, perhaps the one country that is going to be studied to the wazoo and when this is done is what Sweden has done, right? Sweden has decided that, okay, what we're going to do is to inform our citizenry, try to let people make decent choices, try to avoid maybe the super spreader events, but we're going to try to go with a herd immunity strategy. And, and given the profile of the virus that we see, this is going to be more dangerous to a particular group of people, and therefore we can manage that. Um, whether we like it or not, the, the outcome of, of the, what's happening in terms of mortality and so on, I think one thing for sure that, that their model has shown us is that is that they were able to avoid an exponential explosion of, of, of the disease. Somehow, you know, putting the, the minimum measures in place were able, but they might end up with a higher level of mortality. I guess once the whole thing is done, we're gonna have a better way to study it. So that, that's one, one but, but, but one thing that I wanna think in, the, in that context is the fact that uh, when we think about what they're doing, the individual choices that people make in protecting themselves and going out and so on has an externality, right? You go out, you have a, a, a chance of, increasing the progression of disease by you being out, right? So that's something that provides a, a cost to others out there. Um, but on a herd, a herd immunity strategy, you also have a, that externality becoming positive if a healthy person is out. And that's something that, you know, I'm not an economist. I'm not trained to think very, externality is a difficult concept. And oftentimes when we teach, when we teach the, these ideas, uh, it seems to me that this particular one has these two directions where it could go. And I haven't seen much of, of discussion or even in, in the literature or, 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 or anybody really talking about that. And do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's very tricky. I think you're quite right. Um, you know, Steve Landsberg uh, had this uh, article, which was uh, uh, called More Sex is Safer Sex. This was at the time of the HIV crisis. Okay. Yeah. And it was actually based upon a paper by Michael Kramer, uh, who we're just talking about with the vaccine uh, initiative. And uh, the way Landsberg put it is that uh, sexual restraint can be a sin, <laughs> right? So not just <laughs> sexual liberalism. And um, the, the basic argument is this, is suppose that, you know, we have something like a, you know, HIV or something like that. And someone who is very conservative, sexually conservative, uh, goes out and, you know, finds a partner and becomes less conservative on the margin, right? Um, well, that has two good effects. One, it means that the person who is going to have sex with them, uh, they're now having sex with a safe person, right? Um, so that's beneficial. That's, uh, you know, positive externality. Also, if they do get a, this disease, the conservative person, 
precisely because they're not having sex with a lot of people, uh, they don't spread it very much, right? Um, so you do have this paradox that uh, on the margin, um, it can be better, more sex can be safer sex. And this actually happens in practice as well. Um, uh, so I think we see something the same thing. So I think you're, you're pointing to the kind of same uh, idea um, in the current situation is that people who get the disease, um, if they spread it, that's bad. But if they get the disease and two weeks later, three weeks later, you know, they're recovered, now they have herd immunity, that's good because now they're no longer you know, capable of spreading it at all. And that's how the virus is, is wiped out. Um, now, what do you do with that? Uh, so I was early on, I was sort of against this idea of segregating the elderly. And my argument was that Segregating the elderly becomes more difficult when everyone else, when the young are out and about, because then you increase the number of young people who have the, who are infectious, and then that makes it more difficult, more easy for them to transmit the disease. There's more vectors to transmit the disease to the elderly. Um, I'm not so sure any longer. Uh, maybe now I think maybe segregating the elderly might, might work. Um, Again, it's really peculiar, right? Because, of course, the nursing homes are the are very segregated, and that totally failed. Yeah, because the, the young reverse. go in to take, take care of them, and that's, that's exactly. the point that, you know, unless, unless you had a very strong testing uh, capacity or, or that's what surprises me, that we don't have something that is like immediate tests that are available for, you know, right. a nursing home before coming in, you test, and then get in or not, right? Not, not wait a day. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's totally possible technologically. And we can have the antibody tests, which tell you, you know, whether that you have had the disease. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so you can be a nursing home worker, that would be a very positive thing. So I think, again, with the right uh, testing capacity that um, I'm more pro, I'm more open to uh, a segregation policy than I was earlier. Yeah, I wonder if there's an opportunity with, with children and, and in the sense that it seems that the risk of this to children is actually significantly lower than, than the flu. Um, we know that now, right? Maybe we didn't know that in March, but by now I think it's abundantly clear that the risk for, for children is very low. And could they be used as this sort of like positive externality uh, generator of, of as long as they don't see grandparents? <laughs> put, the put the children to work. That's what you're put saying, the right, to work. Carlos? Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> That's how it works in my house. Bring back child labor. <laughs> uh, but, well, but I haven't I'll seen quote much, you on that. Much of the discussion on, 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 on that, how, how children could be a, a, the, the vector for, I'm not going to make the connection to the HIV yeah, yeah. discussion here. But, but uh, um, uh, yeah, no, it, it's... it's yeah. I, my colleague Robin Hanton, as you probably know, has suggested uh, variolation. Uh, that is sort of deliberate uh, infection. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's, something. I'm surprised that the military has not done that already. Um, because the it, troops. Yeah, for yeah. the troops or, you know, for some of these um, uh, aircraft carriers, right. right? It seems like a very natural um, thing for them to want uh, to do. And they have the capacity to, 
you know, I mean, to do that, you don't just want to, you know, do what they did in the old days, you know, rub the scab in someone's wound. You know, you want a very precise dose and so forth and monitoring. And, and the military is perfect for that. And I'm surprised they haven't done that. It, it does seem that we have become a much more uh, uh, legalistic, uh, slow moving, bureaucratic society. I mean, I can't imagine that in the 1940s, you know, in a war that they wouldn't do something like that. And we are in a war today against the virus. Yeah, that's that's the the. I guess you guys write a lot about how the regulatory state has failed us, and 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 it seems to be the case. We don't have the capacity to act quickly, quickly in any. Even if the mil, if the military is not being able to do that, what hope yeah. does the CDC or the public health officials across the country have? And 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 you know, I, I one of the things that to me is interesting as well is that that's not a phenomenon in the U.S. alone. I think that that the entirety of the Western world has shown very little ability to coordinate quick enough react and do, and do things that were, and then, and then we, we, we resorted to like this sort of sledgehammer approach of, Oh, lock it down and hope, hope for the best in some ways. And, and, and uh, here we are now. So anyway, uh, thank you so much for this. This is very, very useful. And again, thank you so much for all the work you've been doing on this. And hopefully next time we talk where we'll be at a better place. Yeah. Good talking with you, Carlos. Absolutely. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs. 